0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 36, Pope Mark I. Mark. Yeah, we've had Pope Eutychian, and we've had Pope Militiades, and now we have Mark. Mm-hmm. Yep, Mark. More accurately, in Latin, he's Marcus, but in every source since then, um, all later accounting, he's Pope Mark, so boring Pope Mark it is. But, before we get into Pope Mark, we have a special shout-out to make this week. Do we? Yeah, so we need to to give some very special thanks to Tim Mazelig, or May's Lily. the last name is very challenging, I am sorry, Tim, but... He, um, he actually went out and got the Rings of the Finger book that we discussed in Caius's episode in episode 30, where we were talking about, uh, how he had the first papal ring that was preserved. And so we said, if anybody can actually go and get this book, do that. That would be cool. And he totally did. And he confirmed in this book that there's not a whole lot more about Caius's ring than what we actually said. But he found some extra bits of it, of information from the book and sent us pictures of a papal ring for a future pope. So. Ooh. Yeah. A long, long way away. Like pope number 212. That's fine. It, it's, it's super cool nonetheless. And, uh, yeah. So that was super helpful of him. And I just wanted to say thank you. So awesome. Now we can deal with Pope Mark. So uh, what do we know about Pope Mark before he was a pope? Very little, but a little bit more than some of the others we've had. So uh, the Liber Pontificalis says that he was born in Rome, or the area around it, and that his father's name was Priscus. He had entered the church by the time of Pope Militiades as a priest. So we know that we're dealing with a man who, at very least was witness to or came very, very soon after the end of the Diocletian persecutions and had, had actually been there to experience the whole of the transition from the Edict of Toleration under Galerius, the Edict of Milan under Constantine, and, of course, Council of Nicaea. Persecution to legitimization to favoritism and wealth and superior position within the empire. Huge transitions that this man has witnessed. And we know that Mark was a fairly notable man in the church. And we have some source material from Reverend Albin Butler in The Saints' Lives. And uh, we, we have not seen a priestly saint crush in a while, so... I do enjoy those. This one isn't as dramatic, but he does say, Saint Mark was by birth a Roman and served God with such fervor among the clergy of that church that, advancing continually in sincere humility and the knowledge and sense of his own weakness and imperfections, he strove every day to surpass himself in the fervor of his charity and zeal and in the exercise of all virtues. So a a virtuous, charitable, and zealous man. You
1: can just hear the priest sort of, like, putting his hands under his chin and going,
0: ah. (laughs) exactly that and the funny thing is uh, we we have referenced albin butler many many times and it's he doesn't feel this way about all of the popes some of the records about the popes are very like flat whereas then there are these ones which are like wonderful virtuous oh and he's the only person saying these things (laughs) about these specific popes so yeah from this point on until his actual papacy Historians really like to speculate about the roles that Mark might have had within the church. We know he was there, we know he was active, and we know that major things were happening at this point that he was at least aware of, if not participating in. And these are things that don't really have direct sources that confirm or deny any of the speculations that the historians are making, so we can't say one way or another other than... Probably, maybe, sort of. So let's have a look at some of their speculations. All
1: right. That sounds fun.
0: Yeah. So.
1: (laughs) And then I said that super
0: flat. (laughs) Sorry. That sounds fun. And in your head, you're going, no. It's okay. I know you. (laughs) The first speculation has to do with the Donatist controversy that we discussed in the greatest detail in Militiades episode, which is episode 34. So, quick recap, there was a problem faction that arose in Carthage under a priest called Donatus, who had a bee in his bonnet about the whole lapsi issue again, and the appointment of a bishop who might have been a lapsi, and then they went to the emperor and asked for a synod to address their complaints, which led to the Lateran Council, which pissed off the Donatus further because Militiades had stacked the deck of the council in a way that favored his approach. And then there was the follow-up council when the Donatists went back to Constantine and just said, give us a council in Gaul. And then he did, which was the Council of Arles. And they also ruled against the Donatists, so the Donatists are not happy with everyone. We can hazard from assumptions and from reasonability that Mark may very well have attended the first council at the Lateran because he would have been in Rome, and also maybe potentially the Council of Arles. And the reason that we can speculate on the second one is that we see Constantine's letter that he wrote directed to the leaders of the church at Rome when he was looking to convene this first council. It's addressed not just to the Pope, but also to someone called Marcus. So we can assume if Constantine is writing to two leaders of the church That he's writing to the Pope, and this other guy called Marcus, and this, we now have a Pope called Mark, is probably the same guy. And he was probably already a pretty well-known priest.
1: Unless there were more people named Mark. I mean, I had, like, at least three or four marks in my class.
0: It's possible, but historians still think it's this mark. Maybe it was, like, Marcus with a, you know last name attached, since we don't have last names for any of our popes yet. Mm. Maybe at the time they did. The letter itself reads as follows. It says, Constantine Augustus to Militiades, Bishop of Rome, and to Marcus. Since many such communications have been sent to me by Alinus, the most illustrious proconsul of Africa, in which it is said that Sicilianus, the bishop of the city of Carthage, has been accused by some of his colleagues in Africa in many matters and since it seems to me a very serious thing that in those provinces which divine providence has freely entrusted to my devotedness and which therein is a great population the multitude are found following the baser course and dividing as it were into two parties and the bishops are at variance it had seemed good to me that cecilianus himself with 10 of the bishops should appear to accuse him and with 10 others whom he may consider necessary for his defence should sail to rome that there in the presence of yourself and of Rectius and Maternus and Marinus, your colleagues, whom I have commanded to hasten to Rome for this purpose, he may be heard, as you may understand to be in accordance with the most holy law. But in order that you may be enabled to have the most perfect knowledge of all these things, I have subjoined my letter copies of the documents sent to me by Elinus, and have sent them to your above-mentioned colleagues. When your firmness has read these, you will consider in what way the above-mentioned case may be the most accurately investigated and justly decided. For it does not escape your diligence that I have such reverence for the legitimate Catholic Church that I do not wish you to leave schism or division in any place. May the divinity of the great God preserve you, most honored sirs, for many years. So, this is his invitation to have that first council. And in it, if this is our Mark, uh, which historians strongly argue it is, he's being put on the same level as the Pope already. And this also suggests that Constantine is holding him responsible for organizing the actual council with militieties, So this is not only somebody who is in high esteem, but somebody who is seen as having significant responsibility within the church. So with the subsequent Council of Arles, this is more guesswork because we know that Sylvester, who was the new pope at this time, sent two priests and two deacons to represent him in Rome, and historians speculate that maybe Mark was one of these. So they like to say he had all sorts of roles in this time period. Now, There are a bunch of other things that Mark would have been witness to in his esteemed role in the church. Things that would have occurred during Sylvester's papacy that we didn't really have much time to discuss in his episode because of all the major moments happening in the church. So one of these that we didn't mention before was that in 321, Constantine passed a decree that Sunday was to be the Sabbath or day of rest and deliberately draws a line of separation between the Christians he was now favoring to be his religion and the Jews who practice Sabbath on Saturday. So there was no place to put this in in Sylvester's episode, but this is something that is a strong delineation in the church, so we're sticking it in here because Mark would have been very aware of this at this moment. And, of course, Mark would have been witness to the rise and resolution of the Arian controversy at the Council of Nicaea, which was the whole of last week's episode, so we're not going to recap all of that, but we can assume, like the majority of the bishops, that Mark was a Hamusian, since he's not cited as being one of the select Arians that didn't want to sign the thing. And got kicked out. Yeah. But what we can talk about a little bit more, that we only briefly got to talk about in Sylvester's episode, again, is in 330, Emperor Constantine moved his capital from Rome to Byzantium, which he now calls Nova Roma, and what we will come to know later as Constantinople. So we spoke about this briefly in relation to the apocryphal donation of Constantine But it was something that actually historically transpired at this time. And without a doubt, this has a pretty strong impact on the church. We've discussed in times of previous tolerations with emperors how it benefited the Roman Empire to have the head of the new religion also situated in Rome, maintaining the heart of power of all forms in the same places so that it had, you know, some pretty significant, you know, influence there. Practically as well as optically, it looks good if the emperor and all of the leaders of everything are in Rome. But that's not happening anymore, so this is going to have an impact on the church. We now have Constantine at a distance away from the influence of the pope. And what's more, he's now a lot, lot closer to Nicomedia, which is like next door to Constantinople, where Eusebius of Nicomedia a notable supporter of Arius, is living and making his influence. Eusebius, not that Eusebius. And this Eusebius, not that Eusebius, is going to become the patriarch of Constantinople. So he's really, really close to Constantine, and he is going to be one of the biggest bigs in the Eastern Church, and literally is going to be the man who baptizes Constantine on his deathbed. So... Yeah. This is super problematic by the end of Pope Sylvester's life. Another synod is being convened in Jerusalem, which undoes the condemnation of Arius that was set at the Council of Nicaea, as well as all of those who follow his teachings, and brings them back into the church in an attempt to put an end to any future division. All of this work at the Council of Nicaea is undone in ten years. (laughs) We actually have a copy of a letter from Athanasius from the council relaying this decision. So remember, Athanasius in Alexandria. Super, 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 super Hamusian guy. Super anti-Arian. It's his accounting we have of this council that says that, hey, Arians are okay again. So he says, The holy council assembled in Jerusalem by the grace of God, etc., their orthodox teaching and writing, which we have all confessed to be sound and ecclesiastical. And he reasonably recommended that they should be received and united to the Church of God, as you will know yourselves from the transcript of the same epistle, which we have transmitted to your reverences. We believe that yourselves also, as if recovering the very members of your own body, will experience great joy and gladness in acknowledging and recovering your own bowels, your own brethren and fathers, since not only the presbyters Arius and his fellows are given back to you, but the whole Christian people and entire multitude, which on occasion of the aforesaid men have long time since been in dissension among you. Moreover, it were fitting, now that you know for certain what has passed, that the men should have communicated with us and have been received by so great a holy council that you should with all readiness hail your coalition and your peace with your own members, especially since the article of faith which they have published preserve indisputable the universally confessed apostolical tradition with teaching. The thing I find particularly interesting about this letter that we have, which, you know, accounts this moment in history where Arius is brought back into the church and reconciled, even though that's going to solve absolutely nothing, is that he's so, so strictly Hamusian that when he talks about them being received back to the body, he refers to them as their own bowels. Yeah, I heard that. There was too much to unpack. Yeah, so he uh he's still not particularly happy with the Arians. So speaking of Athanasius, it's time for our very first Athanasius interlude.
1: Uh, the Athanasius Interlude
0: Because Look, Athanasius is going to be part of our story for so long, such a long time to come. And for the most part, he's going to be more important than the next handful of our popes. In the grand scheme of things, he's way better known, and his story is crazy. So we have to contend with this man. There is no way we can talk about what happens with the next handful of popes without talking about Athanasius, because it really all comes down to how they feel about him and how that gets them into trouble or not. This is how we're going to structure it. So for the next handful of popes, each episode is roughly going to have an Athanasius interlude, where we're going to cover and contextualize what's going on with Athanasius within the scope of the pope. Then we're going to release a full biographical episode on the whole of Athanasius' life on Patreon for our supporters to kind of fill in the gaps, go into way more detail than we can in these episodes. And then, when we finish the whole of the narrative, we have a very special episode coming with Pontifex's first guest, Yay! Uh, so,
1: yeah, yay! <laughs> Sorry, that was me, that was supposed to yay. <laughs>
0: yay! Uh, we are going to have Jonathan Adley of the History of the Cops podcast, and that's cops not, that's COPTS, not COPS?
1: Yeah, not cherries and berries. So
0: we are going to really dig into this dude.
1: <laughs> anyway, we look at
0: it. So we have our first collab coming!
1: Woohoo! Ooh, that'll be interesting. He gets to deal with me and how weird I am.
0: I think he's going to enjoy that, actually. And, uh, just as something coming down the tailpipe, we have more collabs in the work now. So I'm super, super excited about stuff to come for the future. Uh,
1: yeah, one of those is pretty exciting. Uh, yeah! <laughs> We're gonna have some RexyPod
0: mashups. Oh, it's gonna be so good. I'm so excited. So both of these are gonna be amazing. Amazing collab, so I'm looking forward to both of them, but History of the Cops is coming first, and it's going to be all about this man, so. And you hopefully will have enough interludes then to uh, have some questions for him, because he's written like 12,000 words on Athanasius already, so. Though we discussed Athanasius in his role at the Council of Nicaea, which was as the right-hand man to the Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, we should just catch up with him a little bit. Uh He has now succeeded his mentor. Did Alexander die? Alexander did die in 328. He just didn't, like, shove
1: him and go, I'm in charge now.
0: He did not. No, actually, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh When Alexander was dying, he... Athanasius kind of bolted because no. he's like, nope, don't want that job. And Alexander, like, pulled him back and said like uh no i'm a I am identifying you as my successor, and the bishops will follow that, so tough nuggies, pretty much almost word for word, uh, so like his predecessor, Athanasius is an extremely fervent Hamusian. in fact, some recordings of the council, it's actually Athanasius who suggests that term for the creed of the Council of Nicaea, so Hamusian might even be his word. <laughs> He he is hardcore into this. Super, super hardcore. And so when Arian views were condemned at the council, and Arius gets exiled from Alexandria, Athanasius would have been feeling pretty darn good about how it all went down. Oh yeah, validated. So he continues that exact position when he was made the patriarch of Alexandria, and he's cracking down on the Arians and the Miletians who had joined them, as like we discussed last week. Unfortunately, like we said before, Constantine had moved away from Rome and was getting quite cuddly with Eusebius of Nicomedia.
1: He lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople. Not yet, he
0: doesn't. <laughs> it's still Nova Roma, it's not even Constantinople yet, but... <laughs> we're getting... I don't think Nova Roma has the correct amount of syllables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't. Um So yeah. He's cuddly with Eusebius of Nicomedia, staunch Arian supporter, who has a very, very good reason to hate Athanasius. And so he starts feeding Constantine all these stories about how awful Athanasius is. Ooh. This leads to the calling of the First Synod of Tyre, called by Constantine in November of 335, where Athanasius is summoned and made to answer charges laid against him. Oh, no! The charges range from mistreating Aryans and Miletians who had remained in Alexandria all the way up to claims of magic and dismembering. Okay. Magic and dismembering. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, here we go. Not dismembering magic, but magic and dismembering. He's using a, a dismembered body part for aid in magic? He's waving a foot around. <laughs> it's an arm, but yeah, pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> we're we're going to get into a lot more detail about all of the charges against him in his Patreon episode. But for now, we have Zosman's account of a few of these charges. He says, Of John's party, Callistinus, a bishop, and a certain Iscurius, accused him of breaking a mystical chalice and of throwing down an Episcopal chair and of often causing Ascurius, though he was a presbyter, to be loaded with chains. And especially in the indictment concerning Arsenius, whose arm he was charged with having cut off for purposes of magic, and in the indictment concerning a certain woman to whom he was charged with having given gifts for uncleanness, and with having corrupted her by night, although she was unwilling. Both these indictments were proved to be ridiculous and full of false espionage. As to the second, the accusers strove to justify themselves by saying that a bishop under the jurisdiction of Athanasius named Plusian had at the command of his chief burnt down the house of Arsenius, fastened him to a column, and mistreated him with tongs, and then chained him in a cell. Mistreated him with tongs. Um, okay. Torture. I know hot tongs i know yeah i I just
1: i'm picturing like grilling tongs
0: it's also spelled thongs (laughs) in most of the translations (laughs) so if you need a great image there you go they further stated that arsenius escaped to the cell through a window and while he was sought for remain for a while in concealment that as he did not appear they naturally supposed him to be dead that the reputation he had acquired as a man and confessor had endeared him to the bishops of John Party, and they had sought for him and applied on his behalf to the magistrates. So now, with Athanasius having cut off his arm for magic, and him being tortured and having his house burned down, now they're throwing murder on top of it all. But in the eyes of the council, Nothing was more important than the concerns that Athanasius would cut off the grain supplies from Alexandria to Constantinople and other areas of the empire on account of any other area's support of Arian teachings. So at this council, the Arians who are running the council find Athanasius guilty of everything. All of these charges corrupting women magic murder all of the above he is found completely guilty of and they make a recommendation that he must be deposed immediately (sighs) deep sigh i'm so
1: glad that you know the justice system has come a long way
0: yeah um you'll be saying that so many times during these interludes oh boy so totally found guilty of all of these things but Athanasius is like, no way, this is ridiculous, I am clearly not guilty of all of these things. So he appeals to Constantine directly, and the two actually meet. And Constantine clears him of all of the charges. But this grain thing comes up again. And whatever Athanasius said about the grain thing, like, maybe he said, yeah... The grain supply could be cut off, but that's not what I'm doing. However he said it, Constantine takes it as a threat. Mm. So he has just been cleared of all these charges, only to be found guilty of plotting to cut off the grain supply again. I have a question.
1: Why does Athanasius have any sort of jurisdiction over gray?
0: Okay, so Egypt is like the breadbasket of the empire, right? And the main source and the main commercial hub of Egypt is Alexandria. He is the patriarch of Alexandria, so at this point he is one of the highest authorities in the city and would have the power and the influence to actually cut that off, and it would be very hard for the prefect of the area to uh, step in. So, he could have done it, but that might not have been on his radar at all. So he was just more like, "Ha ha, I guess I could." And then Constantine pulls a 180 flip and says, "Guess what? You're now denounced, deposed, and exiled. Bye-bye." I mean, okay,
1: he's the emperor, he's allowed it, he's he can just have these sort of tantrums,
0: and he sure did, and so he exiles Athanasius to Treves in Gaul, which is modern day Trier in Germany. So, this is the first exile of Athanasius, and this will be the end of our first Athanasius interlude. I will not tell you how many there are. This is, this is where we're going to, to leave Athanasius. Well, sort of. We have one more thing to address. It used to be thought that in this time of his first exile, Athanasius receives a letter from Pope Mark. So even though this has been proved to be a later forgery, we're not, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we can be sure that whether the letter was real or not, Mark probably sympathized with Athanasius for this horrible situation that was going on. Well, as he should. Obviously as a pope, he is a Hamusian as well. And he's going, whoa, okay. So the Arians really won that one, didn't they?
1: Why are they even there? Like, I mean, I get, I get the, Constantine went there and was like, you're my friend now. But also, they should just be gone?
0: They should be, but the problem is Eusebius of Nicomedia is a very influential man.
1: He could have been deposed and kicked out and sent to Germany.
0: And rightfully so, if we follow the Council of Nicaea, he should have been, and he would have had to sign the Council of Nicaea because only two people refused, aside from Arius himself, only two people actually refused to sign it, and they got exiled.
1: Yeah, so he was one of those guys who's like, I'm just gonna sign it, but I don't really believe it.
0: That's exactly who he is, and that's exactly who he's going to continue to be. Now, that's the end of our interlude, and all of this starts, as happening before Mark is actually made Pope, so... It was just kind of, we have to set the stage. This is the first exile of Athanasius. It has happened now. And then Mark is made Pope on January 18th of 336. So saith the Liberian catalog. It is no. And we have zero evidence that from this point on that he participates in what's happening with the religion in the East, or if he has any further correspondence from Constantine, or anything else from that point of view. So in its place, we have a couple less intense things that are credited to him by uh, the Liber Pontificalis. The first is that the Depositio Episcoporum and the Depositio Martyrum, which are historically compiled lists of bishops and martyrs in the early church that we have referenced multiple times, were started.
1: Yeah, good, good. This is way past that point where, like, you shouldn't be talking about this stuff because it's going to get you killed, so he can do it.
0: He can absolutely do it, and the only thing we don't know is, did these start in his papacy because he ordered them, or is this something that was just happening in the church at this time, and so he gets credited with it? I
1: mean, it seems logical that it might have just been happening at that time, because they, they've they had so many years of peace, and they're like, cool, we have some
0: time, let's set aside some time to do this. But it also seems like the thing he might have taken a personal investment in once it was underway. He might have been like, yes, absolutely, let me help support you in this thing that you're compiling, because I will be clearly referenced on it somewhere at some point. Then he is also credited with having founded two churches in Rome. So the first is the Basilica San Marco in the Juxta Palasinus in Rome which he did not name for himself, by the way. It's not called Basilica San Marco because he's St. Mark. It's named for Mark the Evangelist, so... Okay. I don't know. That could have been something that he went, Oh, St. Mark, how convenient! We don't know, but it is called San Marco. Just, it's not dedicated to him. He also began a cemetery church in the Catacomb of Balbina, which was somewhere in the range of like the Via Appia and the Via Ardeatina which was newly acquired church land that had been gifted by Emperor Constantine. And the church, once they were founded by Pope Mark, had also been gifted furniture and finery for both of the churches, much like we saw with the massive gift list recorded in Pope Sylvester's Liber Pontificalis entry. So, more gifts. Yeah, so many gifts. So even though we see the emperor moving away from Rome, we have to be careful in assuming that that meant his affections were cooling with Rome. We can't make that direct connection because he might have been taking different advice from advisors with different ideas than the Roman bishop, (laughs) Eusebius of Nicomedia, but he was still making sure that the churches in Rome were being founded and filled with wealth and nice things. But one of the most interesting things that is credited to Pope Mark is what Mark set up for the bishop of Ostia. And we could say... Pretty, pretty significantly, this is probably his most important thing that he did. Ostia, by the by, is just kind of outside of Rome. It's its own well-populated area, even during antiquity. So it's nearby, but it's, it is its own thing. And according to the Liber Pontificalis, Mark invested the Bishop of Ostia with the Pallium and ordained that he would consecrate the Bishop of Rome. So this is a pretty significant distinction. We're going to break it down into pieces here so that it makes sense. First, the pallium. Do you know what a pallium is? I'm going to say no. Well, for those who aren't in the Catholic know-how or are in the lapsed Catholic know-how, a pallium is an ecclesiastical vestment made of white lamb wool that is draped around the shoulders. Kind of closest. It's the one you see that kind of looks like a scarf. Oh. Yeah, that one. So, the pallium has always been a pretty exclusive vestment to wear, and is mostly associated with the Pope as symbolic of his highest authority. That's what that's called. Yeah. It can also be worn by high-ranking bishops, like the metropolitan bishops and the primate archbishops, when they are given their additional holy jurisdiction within the role that they hold. It's a Y shape. It is a Y shape, yes. And... Wearing the pallium is a mark of distinction within the church. And today, only the Pope and the Metropolitan Archbishops and the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem wear the pallium. They're the only ones who can wear it unless there's like a special permission moment. So very restricted piece of clothing. So it's like, you know, that that mark of distinction.
1: I have found a website that says how to wear your pallium. (laughs)
0: Oh, well, there's not many viewers to that side, I imagine. <laughs> so when Pope Mark bestowed the right to the Bishop of Ostia to wear the pallium, this is the first time that we actually see this established for any clergyman anywhere in the church. So up to this point, it was for the Pope alone. And it won't be until the 6th century that we'll see other cases recorded in any type of verifiable way that anybody else gets to wear it. And even more importantly than the pallium, it's this bit about the bishop of Ostia being the one responsible for the consecration of the bishop of Rome and future bishops of Rome, which makes him ostensibly one of the highest ranking and most important members of the church in Rome or outside of Rome. So this is a pretty substantial honor to be the one who consecrates the bishops. And we do know that throughout the 4th century, it is recorded that the bishops of Ostia will indeed consecrate the new popes, so it's because of Mark that we have this precedent. It's also possible that the bishop was already occupying this role and had been consecrating previous popes, since we have no mention of it, but Mark is the first pope who makes this something official. And just for the record, nowadays, when the new popes are elected, they already have been consecrated as a bishop, but in the case that a bishop is not the one elected to be pope, which has happened, the newly elect is consecrated immediately upon acceptance to the election before he can actually be made pope or announced to the world. And in the rare, rare case that this ever happened in today's world again, uh, the consecration would be performed by the dean of the College of Cardinals, who is currently Cardinal Angelo Sodano, who happens to be the Bishop of Ostia. <laughs> so, full circle, total coincidence, because it's usually just the longest-serving member of the college, but it, right now it is the Bishop of Ostia. And we have, of course, just like everything from the Liber Pontificalis, we have more reliable sourcing for the bestowals of the palliums in the 6th century so it's possible that he didn't do this at all. But I feel okay letting Mark have this one, because otherwise we're going to be so shortchanged when it comes to ranking.
1: You know, it happens sometimes.
0: Because the last thing we have to talk about is an offhand mention in the Liber Pontificalis that says he made regulations for the whole church. Oh, oh what? No, that's it. That's it. We don't know what kind of regulations these are or or, or what they were meant to be, but... um. The whole church is an interesting phrase in itself. It just says De Omnia Ecclesia. Uh, There is no mention of it being like an ecumenical council or anything. So we we
1: don't know. It's a regulation. It just says regulation on the top. And below it, it says whole church.
0: (laughs) Very useful. So good. He did it. It got recorded in history. We're talking about it now. So (laughs) it was clearly worth his time. So, So now... He, his death. Literally, that's all we have. Like, there's a reason that we talked about context, there's a reason that this is the first Athanasius interlude, because he dies on October 7th, 336, of natural causes, which is confirmed in the Depositio Episcoporum. And we don't have a token martyrdom account, because that's not normal anymore. He was buried, according to his request, at the Catacombs of Balbina, which was one of the churches he was constructing. He made it, so now he gets to live there forever. Uh, it doesn't seem to have been finished at the time, seeing as he was pope for a short period of time, but he was eventually buried there. His remains were kept there until 1048, and his gravesite was located on pilgrimage itineraries of the 7th century, despite not being a martyr. And in 1048, they were moved to Valletri, just outside of Rome. But in 1145, they were moved back to Rome to the Basilica San Marco, which he also had constructed, where they remain in an urn under the altar there. And I have a photo of that for you. Oh, yeah. I just found a new page which has a list of all the extant papal tombs that are still like visible. So I was able to dig up a whole bunch of pictures. So there there's the tomb. Oh, he's got a Jesus P. He's definitely got the Cairo. I love that you say Jesus P. It will always be the Jesus P. <laughs> also on this this website or this this list that I found, they also have the tomb of St. Lucius who we've covered already. And they have the tomb of Anacletus, which we have not had a picture of. So because these are things we didn't get to look at during their episodes, I'm sending them to you now so you can just have a perusal of their tombs.
1: Oh, it's got Cecilia on it. Lucius's does. It sure
0: does. And a goat. And then Anicetus, for such an early pope and such a short pope, has a very grand tomb. Yes,
1: yeah, very pretty. Mm-hmm. Considering, uh, looking at, um, Marx is just like shoved into a corner, how does the priest get behind it? I don't think he does.
0: No, I don't think so. This is sort of one of those alcove spots that, that they have. It's more like a a table
1: at a, like a brunch setting and less like an altar.
0: It, yeah, it d- definitely does look like that. It's very, it's very nothing. It's so plain and just kind of like, when you look at anicetus's tomb, a pope who ruled for so short a time. His has like a... A whole fresco, like six different frescoes on it. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, and and Marx is not. So
1: Marx is where you leave like the extra hors d'oeuvres that haven't been brought out yet.
0: Okay, well, well, we'll we might have to keep that in mind for his patron sainthood. So uh, last note on his his tomb situation is Pope Damasus, who produced poem epitaphs for many of the martyrs and popes, is said to have produced one for Mark as well. It's thought to be Pope Mark's. We don't know for sure. It's called the Eulogy Marki, but beyond that, I couldn't actually find what it says. It says that it's been preserved, but pretty mutilated, so there might have been a Damasus poem for him at some point. And that's Mark. So.
1: That's it? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess we're talking about his tomb. Yeah. So, uh, we need to raid him. Oh, goodness. I don't know if
0: he's gonna do well. (laughs) No. No, he won't. Papatum infallium. Uh, he he does the whole Bishop of Ostia thing. So he marks out the bishop to be a symbol of the Pope's authority, makes him the one to consecrate future Popes, so that's a distinctive legacy, for sure. And obviously the Acts of the Martyrs uh, being started in this time is something. Whether he had something to do with it or not. He had that depositio episcoporum and martyrology. So,
1: what do you want to give him? Um, that's that's probably like a three. Okay,
0: you're being very generous. I'm going to give him a one.
1: I am being very generous because you know that that's an important tradition. It is, and then also books on martyrs. I'm surprised you didn't give him an extra point for being historian.
0: <sighs> yeah, but they're not good sources. They're usually just like this dude died on this day. There's something. It's, yeah, but no, I just you know I. We're we're in a period now where we actually have good sources. We have Zosmin, we've had Scholasticus, uh, Socrates Sol- Scholasticus, we have Jerome, we have... Every time you say
1: Socrates Scholasticus, I picture like a Saturday morning cartoon.
0: It does sound like one! It would be perfect! Oh boy. But we, my point is that we we definitely have sources at this time. So I'm I'm less You're being
1: picky. I see. I see that you have some standards now. I do. I finally have
0: standards in terms of our historical
1: <laughs> sources. Look at you getting standards.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it, we're we're moving into that era where we can actually, where there will actually be times where I will look at a source and not use it.
1: Oh. What?
0: <laughs> yeah. You
1: can just cherry-pick sources?
0: Isn't it amazing? I know. We feel so good about it. Fructus prohibitum. Nada. He's got nothing. Oh, but I'm looking at our list of the future popes to come, and we have so much scandal coming up.
1: Ooh, I like scandal. I hope it's interesting and less, and then he left the church.
0: There's a bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Sizzle.
1: We've done this almost a whole year, and there's not really been that much scandal.
0: Marcellina's got a 17, man. Look, it wasn't a fun scandal. It was not a fun scandal. And Peter got a 14, but he was just a douche. And I, I have to say that some of our people coming up who are going to get scandals, like, I'm very certain that we're just about at our first 20. Ooh! Or very, very close. No, we're not far from the era of some fun scandal, but we're also in the, the, the era of, like, terrible person scandal, so.
1: Terrible person scandal is still more interesting than, like, Oscar movie-worthy scandal.
0: True. Very true. There will be some of that coming, too, so.
1: A Ben Affleck film on Marcelinas Producers,
0: you can have that one for free, but, like, royalties? Seculari impactum! So lists of bishops also started to be Oh, here I was going to give him points for historian stuff, so I guess I can't do that now. Haha, ha, you screwed up. Well, here I've got a new one. Um can we blame him in any way for the severance of influence over Constantine or is that just proximity?
1: That was more like Constantine went somewhere else and
0: yeah, made a bad friend. Made a bad influence for sure. So I think that one has to be a zero as well. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, we get to look at his face. Show me that man. There is a man to look at. So here's the first one that we write on. Oh. No. <laughs> that was an unimpressed, oh.
1: I am unimpressed with this potato
0: face. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much to say about it. He's got some real big lips. Look. He he does. His frown goes all the way through his jowls. Um, he's got the bunny poof, but he's not rocking it like the old popes did. It's just kind of sad. There. It's there,
1: and it's sort of swooshed to the side. He's combed it over.
0: It is. A, I was gonna say, it looks like a comb-over bunny poof, so... But what's really jarring is just this massive part in his beard. Yeah, I,
1: I don't know what's up with his forky beard. It has cleavage, is what it has.
0: The, but this is not a good forky beard. We've given points for forky beards before.
1: I don't know. No, it's a bad one. It looks like it's separated too far.
0: I think there is, like, a distinctive gap through the middle. Like, it's it does not fork at some point. It is—he has two separate beards—
1: that's an unfortunate beard growth. <laughs> it's fun. Like, you know, there's there's no shave November now, and Ugh, men will no grow shave their November. beards. Some of their beards are weird. I, I'm going to say it. For the most part, beards are gross. <laughs> My husband has a
0: beard. No, not really. No, that's I don't count that as a beard. You don't count that as a beard. He sent me a picture the other day. Does he have a beard? No, he, didn't, he has like a close-cropped thingy. It's not like a beard. <laughs> so,
1: okay, facial hair is okay, Yes, but like a long ZZ Top beard is yeah, is what yeah. you're
0: going for. It, it, for me, it's all about how much cheek and jowl coverage you're getting in, and if it's hanging off the bottom, uh, no. No. You gotta take care of that thing, man. You just, yeah. It should be shape, yeah. I, no, I'm beard territory. Nope. John doesn't have a beard, though. He has, like... What would you call it? Bushier version. An extended goatee. (laughs) That makes it sound real bad. (laughs) Better than... No, Duck Dynasty, we're out. Yeah, that's fair. So, this man with this separated, two separate beards thing going on, what do you want to give him? Uh, no, let's give him a one.
1: He's got a potato face and he doesn't even have a full beard.
0: Okay. So you'll give him a one. I'll give him a one. That gives him a 0.5 in this category, which is very low. We have not seen somebody that low, low for a while. So now we have our person who does terrible pope pictures, who has not improved. However, this is going to go in a completely new direction for you. Ooh.
1: <laughs> All right, now he's a
0: conehead. He's a conehead, which is, you know, he is wearing the pallium, you notice, like, very distinctively. This is my pallium, this is what I'm all about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as if it takes away from the giant papal tiara that didn't exist yet, so I don't know, it just feels so generic and weird. I'm glad we don't rate on these ones, because we'd just be giving everybody a zero. He
1: didn't draw a beard on him, so he looks much different from the other ones, because there's not, like, a beard to hide all the glaring facial problems this man has drawing.
0: Yeah, it's true. So, there you go. That's uh, that's Mark's face, so.
1: You know what he looks like? He looks like a baby. (laughs) He's got a
0: really small mouth and really big eyes. But he has, like, Age lines all over that is the oldest baby I've ever seen. Oh, God. This this is such a short Pope, and we are so derailed. An aged baby. I love it. Aged baby. Tempest Pontificus. So from January 18th to October 7th of 336, so eight months and 20 days he was Pope
1: for. No, I'm still stuck on aged baby. What was that, uh, Benjamin Button?
0: Yes! He's Benjamin Button! There we go. Perfect. So, he only had eight months and twenty days as Pope to be Benjamin Button. Do you think there was any perceptible change in his reverse aging at this point? I mean, maybe. Maybe a little bit. Maybe. So, for him, we round that up to a year, and he gets a score of 0.25.
1: All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round!
0: Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is October 7th, originally cited in the Martyrologium Hiromanium. Uh, He is the patron saint of Abadia San Salvatore in Tuscany on the Monte Amiata. So he is actually a patron saint, if you can believe it sometimes that happens it does happen total score all right so his total score oh oh boy what does he get like a 10 he no
1: (laughs) oh
0: okay his total score is a 5.75 Ooh, ouch It's so low. Um, And, you know, I have this fancy new thing that I finally figured out on our spreadsheet where it actually live updates what rank a pope is in. And Pope Mark is Pope 36, and he is in 34th place. Ooh, ouch. I'm sorry,
1: Mark. You're not getting a papal bull.
0: Yeah, no, we can just skip that right over, because I can hear the no yelling at me from here if I started to introduce it. (laughs) you just be like, no, the spreadsheet says no. Yeah, it, it says no. So unfortunately, no papal bull for you. However, that is not the end of our episode because it's time for Poplatch.
1: Man, so much has happened.
0: So much. And I'm going to say this now because this is this is coming out soon, but at the time of recording, Yes, PBC 2019, which was the papal abuse summit that just happened this weekend. We are going to separate that and we're going to do our own thing for, like, there is going to be a bonus Pope Watch episode that comes out to talk about that council. So those are not the Pope Watches that we are doing today. We have two stories to cover. We will get there. I know everybody's waiting, but I had to actually wait until it was over in order to make sure I got everything that they actually were talking about. So, I am literally Pope-watching so that I can write the Pope-watch. So, that is coming. Here are the Pope-watch stories that we are going to cover. The first. On February 13th, Pope Francis approved a second miracle attributed to Blessed John Henry Newman, which means that this man is now underway to become a new saint. He was beatified by Benedict XVI in 2010, and it's pretty much thought that Blessed John Henry Newman will be a saint by the end of the year. And like when we covered Bishop Oscar Romero before he was a saint, and how excited people were about this, this is a man that people feel very strongly about. So, in brief... John Henry Newman, was born in the early 1800s. He was originally a Protestant and was ordained and part of the leading men of the Church of England at the time. But he became part of the uh, Oxford Movement, which was a group of Anglicans who wished to return the Church of England to a lot of its... Previous beliefs and rituals of the Catholic faith that they had had before the Reformation. So it was kind of a group of Anglicans who wanted to Catholicize. And then he, he actually leaves the Church of England and converts to Catholicism in 1845, very quickly ordained as a priest, becomes a very, very influential priest. And as a result of his conversion at the time in history that it was, he was very, very much seen as a traitor to a lot of anglican english people. Uh in 1879 he was made a cardinal by Pope Leo XIII. He wrote a very very famous publication, his autobiography called Apologia de Vita Sua, which is a defense for one's own life. He died in 1890 and uh yeah, he he's a very controversial figure but people are pretty jazzed about this news. Uh if you want to read a really interesting article about this man, rather than just have me tell you about him, uh the host of the Why Is That podcast wrote a, a really, really wonderful article that I will put in our show notes because, yeah, it was great. It was very, very informative, and it was before all of this new news came out. So, very interesting. Now the big one. On February 16th, the Vatican announced the official decision to laicize Theodore McCarrick, the former cardinal and Archbishop of Washington. This is the, basically the American cardinal who was at the heart of all of these sex scandals coming out. The this this is where all of this really 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 started to blow up is with McCarrick. So the decision declared that McCarrick was found guilty of solicitation in the sacrament of confession and sins against the sixth commandment with minors and with adults with the aggravating factor of the abuse of power. We've talked about laicization before, but this means that McCarrick is completely and permanently removed from the priesthood. He loses all of his rights, privileges, and duties of the priesthood. He cannot present himself as a priest. He is forbidden from performing sacraments. Um, And Pope Francis also recognized, quote, the definitive nature of this decision made in accord with the law. So it can't be appealed. He's done. Permanently, he's done. This is, like we said, one of the most prominent in the scandal stories of the church. And this is, this punishment ruled against him is the harshest that has been given to a cardinal in the history of the modern church. He was originally suspended from his role as bishop and the Carter, from the College of Cardinals in 2018 when the first allegations were made public. Uh, his case is one of the most controversial because it's the one where the bishops had, rec- and the seminarians from under him had claimed to have reported his actions previously and that they were covered up. And that led to that letter by Archbishop Vigano, who demanded that Pope Francis resign because he'd known about all of the allegations. He also claims that Benedict did. We're going to get to this letter one day, as well as the response by Cardinal Marcoulet, who called Vigano out as being full of bullshit, but That is that is a long time in the future. So many, many, many allegations have come out against McCarrick. All have determined to be credible and substantiated. And interestingly, since being removed in 2018, he'd been sentenced to a life of prayer and penance, which is like ecclesiastical house arrest. And he'd been living in a Capuchin friary in rural Kansas. So I'm interested if he'll have to vacate now that he's been laicized. I've been looking into that, and I have gotten uh, no answers of that yet. But if we find one, we we will uh, we will update our Pope Watch. So that is a both somber and positive note to end on, I think. Hmm. Um. So shifting focus just for a second, so that we can say thank you to a couple people. We need to say thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rancium. The History of Ancient Greece, Ryan's Dit has been amazing. Uh, the History of the Roman History and Byzantine Facebook group has been super, super helpful and supportive of us. And to all of you listening. So, thank you, and goodbye.
1: Bye.